Well, before we <clears throat> begin this morning, I wanted to just take a second, and on behalf of the Berger family, I wanted to thank you all for your tremendous encouragement and love as you have poured it out, as you have shared it with us in abundance with words of encouragement and hugs and invitations to dinner, welcoming us here into ministry at New St. Peter's. Um, we have felt for a long time now a great deal of thanks to the Lord for making us a part of the family here at New St. Peter's, and we find ourselves thanking Him yet again as He allows us to stay here and continue in ministry with you all. So thank you very much. A number of you have asked me about the title printed on the back of the bulletin. Um, just so you know, I'm currently in kind of a pastoral purgatory of sorts, kind of a kind of a middle ground of some kind, because I'm on staff here at the church, but I'm not yet ordained, and so I can't yet technically wear the title assistant pastor. And we considered a number of titles to put on the back, pastor in waiting, <laughs> pastor with training wheels, pastor in pull-ups. But in the end, we thought that pastoral intern would be the best title to keep there on the back. Well, this morning might be a little bit of Bible whiplash for us because, ironically, even though last week was Easter, this morning's passage finds us back at Monday Thursday. As we come to chapter 13 in John's Gospel, we're coming to a major break. What's really the beginning of the second half of the book. Up until this point, Jesus has given one miraculous sign after another, followed by long explanations where he would unpack the meaning of those signs. But chapter 13 now turns us to the events of Maundy Thursday, so that the events of this chapter, all the way through chapter 19, take place in one 24-hour period. And so chapters 13 through 17 are often called the farewell discourse where Jesus prepares his followers and disciples for the time of his rejection. He's really giving them one really long explanation before the great sign of his crucifixion and burial and resurrection. This section is an intense discipleship discourse where Jesus focuses intently on loving his small group of followers and preparing them for how they will relate to him once he's taken away from them in his ascension. Young disciples, young theologians, this morning we're going to read about Jesus washing dirty feet. And this is... And in this one act of service he's going to perform for his disciples, Jesus is actually going to give us several pictures of what he came to do for you and what he came to do through you. How many of you know what a kaleidoscope is? Know what a kaleidoscope is. You look through the lens at the smaller end and see one picture, usually some kind of design, but as you turn it, that first picture slowly shifts and changes to make a new design that grows out of the one before it. And this is what Jesus' foot washing does for us. It gives us one picture of Jesus followed by a new picture, followed by another one after that. 
And your job this morning is to look through the kaleidoscope of Jesus' foot washing to see the different pictures that he gives us. And adults, you can do the same. This is the good news of Jesus' very full and very humble and wet and muddy and very cleansing and very mission-ordaining gospel. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and te- if then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one that I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Let's pray. Father, I come to this passage having read of your son washing feet, cleansing. And I need that cleansing. I need the washing of my feet again this morning. I pray, Father, that this morning you, through your word, would show us how in Jesus' ministry of incarnation, and in his cleansing, and in his resurrection, and in his ascension, you are comforting us, you are convicting us, you are teaching us. And would you this morning claim more of us through your word? We ask these things in his name and by the Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite movies is the film The Shawshank Redemption. And I like it for a whole lot of reasons. 
And parents, as a disclaimer, and in case you don't know already, you definitely should be judicious about who sees it and when. But at one point toward the end of the movie, we find the main character crawling out of an underground sewage pipe through which he had just been crawling for 500 yards, barely able to keep his face up in the small airspace between the sewage and the top of the pipe so that he could keep breathing. And he comes out completely covered in the stuff that you would expect someone to be covered in after swimming for almost half a mile in sewage. And he shimmies himself out of the pipe in the middle of the night into the middle of a raging thunderstorm and he lifts his arms up high, raising his face up to the constant flashing of the lightning bolts overhead. And the hammering rain quickly and refreshingly strips the unspeakable filth from his body with torrents of water. And if that's all you saw of the movie, you would think that The Shawshank Redemption is a movie about how a man becomes clean. And you would be right. And you would be wrong. It is a movie about how more than one man becomes clean, actually. But it's also about freedom. And it's about fighting injustice and about friendship and loyalty. And perhaps most of all, it's a movie about hope. But you won't get that by just watching the cleansing escape scene I just described. You have to watch the whole kaleidoscope the full range of motion that the movie makes to see it and understand it correctly. And the same is true with the gospel. The cleansing story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet jumps out at us in this passage, as it should, but the kaleidoscope is fuller than that, and his cleansing of his people is part of a larger story. It's actually part of a larger drama that this whole dripping wet act of service is picturing for us. The drama actually goes all the way back to the beginning. The cosmic and the universal war between God and Satan. And we see Satan all over this passage. Just as the devil had put it into the heart of the woman and the man to betray their Lord in the garden for the sake of gaining power, Satan is at it again here in the upper room, putting it into the heart of one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples to hand him over to men who are also wanting power. But in contrast to the seeming victory the devil achieves in Genesis 3, the Gospels portray Satan's battle with this second Adam as nothing but a failure. Although the devil here is driving himself into Judas, Jesus makes it clear in this passage that what's really about to happen is the ultimate driving out of Satan and his power over us. Jesus is preparing to deliver on his promise in John chapter 12, verse 31, that the ruler of this world will be cast out and judged. And so everything the devil is doing here is part of God's plan, as verses 3 and 18 and 19 make clear. Jesus is the divine agent of salvation sent by the divine sender, his Father, is seen as completely in control. 
He had come for the salvation of men. He was preparing to ascend again as a demonstration of the glory that he shares with his Father. And all of human salvation and satanic judgment and the pinnacle of divine glory are being demonstrated in the life and in the death and in the burial and resurrection of one man. And the devil isn't going to come close to frustrating it. In fact, he's only going to accentuate and decorate it. As Augustine wrote, the betrayer had already been betrayed into the hands of the one that he sought to betray. And this passage captures that for us. But then we turn the kaleidoscope forward and a new picture emerges. And we go from a victorious battle scene to one of startling humility laid right next to startling glory. In this foot-washing service, we see the broad sweep of Jesus' incarnation. And just as John chapter 1 introduces the first half of the gospel with a very profound, maybe the most profound theology of the divine word becoming flesh that we see, so this introduction to the second half of the book begins with the same thing. The first three verses of this passage are packed full of declarations of Christ's deity. We see it in his full and omniscient knowledge of the events about to take place and all the purpose behind them. We see it in his receiving authority and power over all things from the Father. We see it in his coming from God the Father and his plan to return to his throne on high. And all of this highlights Jesus as the divine Son, the Word who descended from heaven. And then, just as He takes His robes off, in verse 4, Jesus takes off His divine option to remain in His glory. And just like wrapping a towel around His waist, the divine Son cloaks Himself in human flesh and human soul and the humiliation of rejection and servitude. And when he's done with his humiliating death and burial, he gets up out of the tomb. And like verse 12, he re-robes himself with his former glory. And he returns to his rightful place as the servant conqueror. And so Jesus' foot-washing ceremony becomes a drama that yells at us the breadth and the scope of Jesus' incarnation ministry. And then the kaleidoscope shifts again. And a new design zeroes in to the center of the last one, the center of Jesus' incarnational ministry. The Word who became flesh drops to the dirty feet of dirtier hearts and cleanses them. The late 4th century church father, Severian, who was from the region of Syria, he wrote, He who wraps the heavens in clouds wrapped round himself a towel. He who pours the water in the rivers in pools tipped water into a basin. And he before whom every knee bends in earth and on earth 
and under the earth knelt to wash the feet of his disciples. And it's fitting that Jesus chose to wash our feet because they were, especially then, the dirtiest part of the body. I mean, representing the worst of filth as entire nations of people would walk through dusty streets running with household sewage and animal manure and nothing but flip-flops. It was every podiatrist's dream and every mother's nightmare wrapped into one. And as Jesus comes to Peter to clean his worst grime, and I love Peter, He's the only one who's always bold and dumb enough to say what everyone else is only going to think. And as Jesus comes to Peter, Peter responds with a rejection of Jesus' washing that really could not be any more strong in the Greek. More literally translated, Peter yells, You will never, ever, Wash my feet ever. That's what he says. As the scholar Frederick Bruner puts it, Peter follows his conscience here and not his Savior. Peter is proud to be humble. But some humilities are deepest arrogance. And just as Peter stood in the way and sought to rebuke Jesus when he prophesied about his coming death in Matthew and Mark, Peter now stands in Jesus' way again as Jesus seeks to dramatically portray the meaning of his cleansing ministry. Peter still didn't grasp what Jesus was doing, just as Jesus said that he wouldn't. He didn't grasp that this was about the pervasive depth of his own depravity and the only answer that heaven had given to meet his need. And as shocking and insulting as it was for his master to take the place usually reserved for slave girls at dinner parties, Peter still didn't understand that his guilt and his filth were deep enough that his master was the only one qualified to do the job. So Jesus then replies, And unless you let go of your humble pride and receive my washing and forgiveness of sins, Peter, you have no place in me. And after these frightful words, Peter does exactly what we would do. He overcompensates and he goes to the opposite extreme. Well, if this is about cleansing and fellowship with you, I mean, Lord, start at the top, a full shower right up here, all the way down. And so the kaleidoscope advances again to the next picture. Jesus' cleansing, really, in this passage, has two meanings packed inside of it. As Peter goes from one extreme to the other in verses 8 through 10, these two meanings are unpacked for us by Jesus. And so when Jesus says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash, in verse 10, he's reminding Peter of the once-for-all cleansing 
the work of justification, which Jesus had been promising all along and which he was only a few hours from actually delivering through his sacrificial death. As the church father Irenaeus writes, he who washed the feet of the disciples sanctified the entire body and rendered it clean. In his swinging to the other side of the pendulum, Peter had forgotten the significance of Jesus' once-for-all cleansing work. In short, it's like forgetting what our baptism pictures, the one-time cleansing of justification. But at the same time, when Jesus also says, you don't need to wash except for your feet, he reminds us that he continues to be our high priest, continually interceding for us, our chief servant, sanctifying the many areas of our life where our flesh needs to die and the dirt needs to be removed and the spirit needs to bring life. In other words, we dare not forget our continual need for fellowship and sanctification pictured in the Lord's Supper. His one-time cleansing of justification and his continual cleansing of sanctification, both are pictured here in one image. But as Christians who are rightfully looking to see Christ holding out his gospel of grace to us in every passage of Scripture, we dare not think that his grace is so stingy as to stop with Jesus' work for his disciples, and to not also include Jesus' work through his disciples. The kaleidoscope of verses 12 through 17 won't let us simply write off the passage as only just another picture of Jesus' cleansing us without also including the implications of what his cleansing is to mean for us. Recently, my daughter Aubrey came up to me after learning about the very scary character of the witch in the movie Sleeping Beauty. And this woman is evil. And she asks me, Dad, is the witch for real in Texas? In other words, how concerned should I be about the existence of this witch. How theoretical is she? Is she for real? Not just someplace else, but, but here where we live in Texas. And in the last few verses of this passage, Jesus lets us know how real the gospel of his foot washing is to become. Not just in our confession, not just in our own cleansing and fellowship with God, but also... In our ministry, Jesus knew that his act of service was shocking to his disciples, which is why he turns to them and says, Now that you know that this ministry pattern of being sent by my Father and giving up my rights and privileges and stepping down into the muck of human sin and cleansing it with my sacrifice and then serving on a continual basis, now that you know that this is how we do it in my family, do it for one another. Now, 
New St. Peter's, we have a church that was built on the gospel. And it will only go forward through the gospel. But you know what? The gospel isn't just an idea or a group of ideas. It isn't just a belief summary statement. The wonderful thing about the gospel is that it's not at its core a group of words. It's a person. It's a person who took on flesh and blood and served and sacrificed and suffered and defeated enemies. And our questions as to whether or not we should be emphasizing justification or sanctification in our lives or as a church are answered very clearly by Jesus for us in this passage. You cannot move to sanctification without justification But justification always moves to sanctification, to action, to service, like an unstoppable tidal wave. And Jesus, who is the gospel, and who is continually offered to us in the gospel, He's also our source of joy in the gospel. He's our source of joy. And gospel ministry. And the reason why it's important for us to understand that the gospel is a person and joy is only found in him is that we have to protect ourselves from buying into the idea that the key to joy in ministry comes with proper balance. The proper balance of family time and church time and work time and time for hobbies. And a certain level of balance has its place in wisdom. It really does. But our joy in sacrificial ministry is not going to come in making sure that it just receives the right proportion of time. Just enough hardship to break a sweat, but never enough to bleed. Go see how many secular magazines and Christian ones too are declaring that the great American challenge is to achieve life balance. And then the joy is just going to come down like spring rain. I know that in my life many times, and I still do it almost daily, I put those articles to the tests just to see if my selfishness is going to evaporate and my joy is going to be multiplied in ministry by just making sure that the other idols in my life receive equal time and equal pay. The reality is that equally balancing five, six, and seven idols and my pantheon never delivers enough death to my narcissism to make ministry joyful. It just doesn't. At best, under those conditions, I'll only ever wash someone's feet with resentment in my heart and with grumbling under my breath. Jesus, Jesus just wants more than that for me. And he just wants more than that for you. 
Ministry was never intended to fit in comfortably with our lifestyle. And it was never intended to be done out of a heart of guilt that believes that our lack of willingness is going to somehow put God in some difficult straits either. It was always intended to be sacrificial. And it was always intended to be done out of and through and for joy. And we need to find our joy supernaturally and mysteriously and regularly in the person of Jesus through faith. And we need to wash one another's feet out of the overflow of this joy. For skeptics, skeptics maybe that even enjoy the morality of Jesus Skeptics who enjoy the social action and the justice of Jesus, rightfully so. Skeptics who enjoy the unconditional love spoken of and offered by Jesus. Verse 18, it's confronting. What do you do when he comes to cleanse your sin? Do you lift your heel against him and deny him to wash your feet? Do you continue to hide behind the excuse that his church is often hypocritical, which is very, very true, by the way? Do you continue to tell yourself that to have a part in Jesus is to cheer for his morality and justice for others from the sidelines while having no part with his people? No part with his cleansing of your sin and no part in turning you into a forgiver of others' sin? If that's you this morning, skeptic, or just a believer like me who has a lot of mud, you need to let him get on his hands and his knees for you, not because you deserve it, but because you don't. And you need to let him wash your feet and cleanse your heart. Amen. Father, We thank you that you are a humble God. You and the Son and the Spirit being the most glorious, the eternal God from everlasting to everlasting, the God who has always been, who had no beginning, who created everything by a word from his mouth, who sustains all things, whose righteousness and holiness would bring us to our face on the ground are also the most humble, the most humble. We thank you that you, through Jesus, have washed us. We thank you that your son took on human frailty and identified with those whom you came to save and cleansed us and washed us 
and defeated our enemies for us and left us the ministry of Jesus as not just an example for us, but also the very ministry pattern that you are living and working into us and through us to the world. You are a great God. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.